Hi, friends. This is episode 17 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us again. Before we go too far, I just want to make sure that you know if you would like to follow along with the study guides while you're listening to this session, um, they are available for you for free, and they are available at our website, thebiblelab.com. So go there, click on the page called Episodes, and just to the right of each episode, you will see the PDF study guide. You can click on that. It'll download for free, and you can follow along. Now, in today's session, I just listened back to it, and I have to say, I am just so thankful for this community. They really go deep in this session, and especially as we're looking at your relationship with God. A lot of people have had a lot of confusion and a lot of misconceptions about God's unconditional love, and so I can't wait for you to hear it. And so God bless you as you enter into this session. I hope you received just as much of a blessing as we did during the live session. Welcome to the Bible Lab. You guys ready? Okay, we're ready. Here we go. Number one, couples should date at least one year before getting married. Couples should date at least one year before getting married. Oh my word, look at these very serious people here. The majority of you, I would say 98% of you are saying yes. Several of the single people are saying I don't know with yes and no cards. And a few of you, just a few of you said no. This tells me this. I got to see this one. Number two, I dated at least one year before I got married. I dated at least one year before I got married. A little bit different. Some of you saying no said yes to the last one. I don't know what that means. Maybe you thought (laughs) you should have checked the merchandise out a little bit longer before you bought. But it looks like the majority of you say yes, you dated at least one year before you got married. Good. Number three, when trying to escape a spiritual slump, most people prefer to try something new rather than to remember the spiritual highs of the past. Okay, so when trying to escape a spiritual slump, most people prefer to try something new rather than remember the spiritual highs of the past. Yes or no? Okay, it is the majority of yes. Keep it, keep it up so I can see. Uh, majority of yeses. Some I don't knows and about 20% no. People try new things, you're saying, rather than trying to remember the things of the past. Okay, good. Number four, God does not respond emotionally to my bad actions because he can see my, in my heart I love him. God does not respond emotionally to my bad actions because he can see in my heart I love him. Yes or No. Oh, we are mixed on this. I hear grumblings in the crowd, even. We're so mixed, we're grumbling. It's about, uh, it's about 60%. Oh, it looks like 50-50, yes and no, and the, and the other, the, uh, and, and, well, the same amount of yes and no's, and, and about 10% of you are saying maybe. Okay? All right, and last one. God offers me an unconditional relationship. God offers me an unconditional relationship. 
I'm seeing a majority of yeses, probably 80% of yeses. I'm seeing about 10% noes, and I'm seeing several maybes, and Gary is waving that yes in the air and waving it like he just doesn't care. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're going to touch on that today. This is the most important question we need to answer today. The majority of you said, yes, God offers an unconditional relationship. And I think this is one of the toughest topics we have in our generation. I believe that all theology is a pendulum. It is a pendulum ever swinging. And if the pendulum goes all the way to an extreme, where religion might say, no, God does not have any tolerance whatsoever for your bad behavior, and if you do that, if you don't destroy all of those Elvis records, bring them to the church for our burning party, you've chosen to go to hell. And then the pendulum says, I can't move any farther that direction, and it starts swinging the other way. And we get to balance point, but it's ever swinging. And we get to the other side that says it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you treat God. His relationship with you is unconditional. The majority of you, I would guess, because of the pendulum swinging, that you are actually reacting to how absolutely radical it was before, I feel many of you might have answered that last question in trying to get away from that extreme, not understanding the extreme that's coming. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get there, I want you to get your comment and question cards ready, and of course your love it cards always, because I want you to comment or ask questions on this. What is the shortest amount of time you've heard of someone dating before they got married? What's the shortest amount of time you've heard of someone uh, dating before they got married? And how did it turn out? All right. We're going to start over here on this side. Two weeks. Two weeks. They were married 29 years. Two weeks. And they were married 29 years. Oh, my word. Back here. Four months. Four months. Four months. And uh, we're still married. We're celebrating our 15th anniversary. You said we. And how many years? 15. 15. That is awesome. And you're still getting to know each other, aren't you? Yes. Julie. In high school, a friend of mine's parents dated for two weeks before they got married. And they were like very happy and just celebrated their 50th anniversary on Facebook. That is a 50th anniversary, if you didn't hear that. They dated two weeks and just celebrated their 50th. They were always kissing in public. And they were always kissing in public. <laughs> One of those couples. Disgusting. Yes. I mean, that's so beautiful. Yes, that's what I meant to say. Over here. Yeah, um, a while back, you know, maybe 30 years ago, I uh, went to my personnel office and talked to the secretary behind the desk, and she had a picture of this handsome young man in uh, army uniform. And I said, who is that? And she says, oh, that was, that was my husband. Oh, was? He said, yeah, we, we got met when he enlisted in World War II. We got married, and we had a two, 
week honeymoon, and he never came back. Mm. Mm. And then she said to me, you know, but I'm so glad I did it. Mm. I have no regrets. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Next, right here, Harvey. Two days. Oh. Two days. You dated, you dated two days? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not calling you out. I'm just, this is a friend? Is this a friend other people can see? It's not a hypothetical friend? This is one of your friends? That marriage lasted over 40 years till they died. Oh, my word. See, you guys are, are saying 40 and 50 years. That's a different generation. Amazing generation. Our, our young adults today, I don't even know if they know how to date. They're dating at 26. First date. Back here. I had a customer that I did flowers for their 75th anniversary, and they met and got married that night and stayed together for 75 years. That is amazing. That is amazing. Cliff and Freddie Harris from the Drug Alternative Program, they met and got married three days later, and I think this is their 25th anniversary. (laughs) That is so cool. Awesome. Over there, Foresight. Um, there was this couple that met, um, and three, I think it was three or four months after they got married, and they've been traveling the world and doing a ministry through music and stuff together, and they've been together for years now. That is awesome. That's awesome. So we've heard several examples here. Of course, we know ones that didn't work, but we're, we're a positive crowd, so we focus on the positive ones. People that have only known each other for a very short amount of time before the proposal and the marriage. We've seen the children of Israel step out of slavery into freedom. How long has it been from the time that they left Egypt until God proposes marriage? Someone said it over here. It rhymes with ooh months. <laughs> Two months. You guys are so fast. That's amazing. <laughs> I love you guys. Yes, two months. They've known God two months in the wilderness. How long did they know him during the plagues? You're right. We don't know. We don't know. It could have been a couple of months. It could have been 10 weeks. It could have been 10 months. We we don't know. Less than a year, most likely, and uh, probably a minimum of 10 weeks. And so... uh, if you put that together, the shortest amount of time, 10 weeks plus, plus two months is four and a half months. Someone actually said four months back here. Four months and still married 15 years later. They've been dating for four and a half months. And those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard God's proposal. And then God says his wedding vows. We call those the Ten Commandments, unfortunately, but it was God's Ten Vows. Uh, for his marriage with his people. Last week, we talked about them getting their house together. It's a mobile home, but at least it's a home, and, and they're putting it together, and God says, I need some custom furniture, and he explains what type of furniture he needs, and the very first piece of furniture that he describes is the Ark of the Covenant, which we saw last week is one of the most beautiful pieces of furniture God could ask for, because these these two cherubim facing each other is the exact same scene 
as the gateway into the Garden of Eden, where the people would come and look through and, and hope to get a glimpse of God, the very place that God himself would come down in the cool of the day and walk amongst his people, the presence of God with people. They look through trying to get, catch a glimpse of God in the Garden of Eden, and they look through hoping to see right in the center of the garden this tree that would bring everlasting life. And God says, the first piece of furniture I want to talk to you about is this, it's basically ornamental. It's the gateway. And I want you to see in between those two cherubim, just like the people did for generations, looking in, trying to connect with the place where God connects with people. The very place where God's toe touched the earth, this ark is the very place that God's toe will touch in your presence. And we're all excited about that. And, and then God says, okay, you've accepted my proposal. Now let's make it official. I'm going to take this ketubah, which is the wedding vows, and I'm going to write my 10 wedding vows. Uh, Moses, bring me up some, some tablets of stone. I'm going to write on the front and back of them. That's right. The Ten Commandments are not the way we picture them. They were actually two tablets, and God wrote front and back. If you don't believe me, look at Exodus 32, verse 15. And so God says with my own finger, I'm going to write my wedding vows. Come up here, Moses, because we're going to do that. And then we're also going to talk about a bunch of other ways that we can live together successfully and have the best relationship ever. And you'll understand me and I'll understand you and we'll continue growing together. And it's in that moment during the honeymoon that there's trouble in the marriage between God and his bride. And that's where we are today. And so I want you to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to take a look at verses 1 through 7. Would someone be willing to read verses 1 through 7 for me? Thank you so much. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning with a tool. They said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to enjoy, to indulge in reverie, revelry. Yes. One more verse. Seven. Oh, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people who, whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Hmm. How long have they known Moses? Maybe four and a half months. They've only followed Moses, how long? Two months. And Moses says, I'm going to go up the mountain. God's going to write his wedding vows with his own finger. He leaves. 
How long is he gone? 40 days. The Bible does not record anywhere Moses telling the people, I will be gone for 40 days. He just says, I'm going to go up the mountain and I'll be back. But 40 days is a long time. 40 days from now, we'll be making New Year's resolutions to lose the Thanksgiving weight and the Christmas weight. We'll, we will have uh, rent up our credit cards as high as we can on Christmas gifts, and now we're trying to figure out how to pay them off. 40 days is a long time. He's been gone 40 days. The people think, Moses, this guy's not young. Um, he went up in the mountain. There's animals, wild animals in the mountain. The bad weather, he's old. Chances are he's dead. He would have been back by now. He would have been back by now. Scripture says that they ask Aaron, we don't know where this fellow, has, Moses, has gone. The original scripture actually doesn't say the name Moses. It just says, we don't know where this man has gone. It's, it's actually a rude way of saying this. We don't know where this guy. In other words, we don't even know him. Where is this man that brought us out of Egypt? In fact, they don't say God brought them out of Egypt. They say, we don't know where the man is that brought us out of Egypt. It's been so long in their experience from miracle to Moses missing that they have begun to doubt in their own mind the miracles of the past. And we begin to see something that we struggle with today. Because within our religion, if our number one goal is to either get to the promised land, heaven, or to see the manifestations of God, and we don't see those for too long of a period of time, we begin to fashion for ourselves religion. We fashion for ourselves the character of God, and we need to create an image of God so that we can perpetuate the momentum that we started. We can at least feel like we're still on a journey. So here the people say, Moses is gone. He's the one that brought us out of Egypt. We just need to keep going. We don't want to camp here forever. This is not a place to set up for a nation. It's not well equipped for two million people. So can we continue on? Where's the God? If that God left us, Who's the God that's going to continue the journey? And so they ask Aaron. Now, it's interesting to note here. They ask Aaron, uh, they gather around Aaron and say, come on, make us some gods who can lead us. We got to ask this question first. Who are these people? Who are these people? Who do you think these people are that come to Aaron and say, make us gods? Why is doing wrong so much easier than doing right? Why is doing wrong so much easier than doing right? Well, you're asking an expert on that. You know that. <laughs> That's a good question. What do you think? Why do you think doing wrong is actually... And, and the big word that we use in this theologically is propensity. Why do we have a propensity to do wrong instead of doing right? Why is it easier to go our own way instead of God's way? I was thinking about this this week. I thought it was odd that... You know, these Israelites are so hungry for some sort of like 
spiritual sustenance. Mm-hmm. And in, in the verse, it's kind of presented as a really, really bad thing. But at the same time, as human beings, we're kind of, we are hungry for that kind of, like, stimulation and, and stuff. And if, if we don't have that, I don't know that it's necessarily 100% a bad thing, though. I think it's, I mean, if we are, go 40 days without going to church, are we, like, you know, climbing up the walls? I don't know. Well, if you don't go to the Bible lab for 40 days. <laughs> no, I know. but I, I like where you're going with this because the, the fact is you're asking the question, if I was in the same situation and I had gone from excitement of the journey to the promise and I get to a cul-de-sac and there is no way forward, we've got to move this thing. We've got to get it going. And for us today, what we do is we manufacture excitement, we manufacture religion to move groups of people from one place to the next. And our challenge during times of spiritual slumps is to say, can I be patient enough to wait for God to say, now you're ready to move? I may be silent, but I'm not absent. And that's the challenge that we face today. So before we're too quick to point our fingers at the people, we need to realize we do that on a fairly frequent basis as people of faith trying to just, can we just have something? It's so dead. It's so, you know, can we just move along? And that's the place where, where the people are. So I love, I love that. Back here and then up here. My short answer was going to be because it's familiar. We always fall back into familiar habits. <clears throat> Last week, I think 70, 75% said that the children of Israel did not realize that it was a wedding vow. And I completely disagree with that because of the language that God used in talking about the 10 words and have seen it, unfortunately, in the line of work that I do we're engaged, he's off to war, she's off to this, she's working across the country. I'm gonna go out with my friends and then something happens. Mm. Yeah. And it's the familiar, I'm bored, is he really coming back? He didn't call me tonight, she didn't call me, she didn't send a letter, mm. she's not on Facebook, what's going on? And we go back to what is familiar. Yeah. So I'm not that hard on the children of Israel, I think they were going back to what was familiar even though they knew that God was proposing marriage. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's why later on, when God speaks of it, he uses two terms. He uses the term adultery. It's kind of a unique term to use here when they're making a calf. He uses the term adultery, and he also uses a term for his own emotions that are going on at that moment. He uses the term jealousy. I'm jealous. Exactly. Uh, Up here. What's interesting to me is back in Exodus 24, it talks about how 70 of the elders of Israel were with Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and it says that they saw the God of Israel, uh, how he was, his feet were on a sapphire stone, and um, so they saw God, it says, and they ate and drank there. And so here they had a vision of God, so I hope they were not there and they were not the ones that went up to Aaron and asked for this calf because they would have known it was not the same at all. Yeah, you're bringing up a good point. 
because the Bible just says the people. But we know it wasn't all the people. Um, many commentators say that because there were several other ethnic groups who had previously been slaves or even some Egyptians that left with the children of Israel into the Exodus. And so many commentators look at this, and because of the, the verbiage that Aaron uses, and Aaron uh, asks them to break off their earrings and their wives and children's earrings, the Israelite men uh, did not wear earrings back at that time. It's believed. And so from that small little snippet, many commentators say, well, this proves that it was a group of individuals either who were slaves from a different uh, background, a different uh, group than the children of Israel, the, the Hebrews, and or Egyptians. And many commentators also say that Aaron, thinking that he's asking for a big sacrifice, would squelch the people because they would say, oh, I don't know. I kind of I like this. It, this is my favorite. I'm not going to break it off of my ear. And so many commentators look at this and say it is quite possible that it was not the whole camp and all the tribes, but uh, mostly led by those who were not Hebrews. But there were Hebrews that joined in. And so uh, many say that it was a rabble-rousing group uh, within that group. The other thing I want you to notice is uh, we usually demonize Aaron here a little bit more than we should. Now, he's an idiot and self-admittedly here coming up when he gives his excuse. Um, but even though he shouldn't have done it, you need to understand that the climate in which he was operating, when it says they gathered around him, it actually uses uh, the Hebrew term kahal nifa'al, which most translations uh, will translate as gather around, but it actually is used in three other places in, uh, where it is used in the Old Testament, and it's always translated in those places as came up against. It's, it's, it's basically offense coming to meet the defense. And so it's, in my opinion, better translated to say they not only gathered around him, but they gathered against him. And it was Aaron fearing for his life as why he caved. But it doesn't excuse away when Moses comes up to him and says, what have you done? And then his excuse, like many who have been caught in an adulterous act, start making incredible excuses. And he says, well, I just threw these earrings in the fire and poof, out popped this calf. Now, I have to say, this is going to be a highly emotional, charged uh, session for some of you, because most of us have gone through, perhaps while we were dating, an experience where the person that we were dating was unfaithful. And I can tell you from experience, that hurts. It hurts deep. But I know some of you have experienced something even beyond that. You've experienced someone whom you've been married to acting unfaithfully. So you know the emotion. You feel it. You don't sympathize here. You empathize here with what God must be feeling in this moment when he has been nothing but faithful and 
his bride, his spouse on the honeymoon is being unfaithful. I want you to take that emotion. And I know it's hard to drum up that emotion again. Many of you have pushed it down, some of you for years. But I want you to use that emotion right now. God gave you that emotion right now to be able to understand his character a little bit more today. To understand how he felt. A lot of times we look at these stories and we, we have this idea that God cannot be offended and God's feelings cannot be hurt. That is not true. And by the end of this session, you're going to see that God is a highly emotional individual. It's not like the, the movies that we watched, I watched growing up of, you know, God the Son walking around, follow me, follow me, and everyone like zombies follows, and he's just emotionless. No, you're going to see today that God is highly emotional, and this is the most emotionally charged experience. So those of you who have experienced what it feels like to be cheated on, use that for good today to understand God's vision in this experience. Now, I think the next comment was over here. Is that correct? Yes. Go for it. I know of a group of uh, faithful church members, and I think there was a time when there was a slump where they get bored. Hmm. So what they did in their Sabbath school, they add something different. They made a boxing ring, and then they asked for volunteers, and then they're born, they give them boxing uh, gloves, and those volunteers, they slug it out, and, of course, there's a lot of excitement in Sabbath school. People are slugging it out in the ring. <laughs> and I guess that is what you said. You know, we have that propensity. Yeah. It'd be nice if they had their own Bible lab, but it turned out to be different. It's a boxing lab, <laughs> you know. It's a <laughs> I, it's some of you are thinking, that's a great idea, and there's a couple of people I would vote to see. <laughs> Go at it! Please don't put me in the ring. You don't want to see that. Over here. Uh, speaking of emotions, um, God knows everything, right? Mm -hmm. He knew that uh, his people would be unfaithful the day of the wedding. Mm -hmm. Would we marry someone knowing that he or she would be unfaithful? Hmm. You bring up a, a great question that someday, and I've threatened this before, someday I'm going to do a session that I call quantum spirituality. We still think in Newtonian physics, even though it's been disproved, that time runs in a single line at a constant, and that God knows beginning, middle, end, single line. We've already proven scientifically that that's not how time flows, that time flows as almost like a tree or the bath bubbles as you, as you have the bath running and you put in the, the bubble fluid. It continues to grow and change, and that's based upon your choice. And God gave us choices to be faithful or unfaithful. So one day, if I'm really dumb, I'm going to do a series called Quantum Spirituality, where we, we try to take the latest understanding of science and time and, and the universe and try to help us understand some of the unanswerable questions we've had in the past because we keep trying to answer them with Newtonian physics. So I would counter back with the shortest answer as I can say, which is we had a choice to be faithful. And God knew we can be faithful or unfaithful, but God knows more than a single timeline. He knows all possible timelines. And he's trying to help us through 
the choices in the paths and the branching of the tree to help us have the best possible end, but we still get to co-create with God what reality is based on our choices. And we'll get to that someday. But it's not that when God proposed that he says, I'm proposing to you knowing there is no way that you'll ever be faithful. People had a choice. And in that, he's up there with Moses, 40 days. He's like, hey, Moses, you better, you better get down there. And he calls him your people. Okay? Those of you who have kids, you know when the kid's doing something bad, it's, hey, your kid, go take care of your kid. Your spouse says, eh, not my kid. He got that from you. And God says, go, go get your kids. They're acting crazy. God calls Moses down to take care of these people. Going to the backside of your study guide, we continue. Because we need to take a look at a couple elements of God's response here. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 31 through 35 is a good section to look at. Would someone be willing to, to read those verses for us? Exodus 32, verses 31 through 35. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore, go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Hmm. Okay, a couple of things here. Moses having this conversation with God. I think it's interesting, Moses' uh, perspective, because we're going to see in the close of class God's perspective on this. But Moses' perspective, oh God, you're going to destroy him, you're going to destroy him, please. Many of you raised the card that we have an unconditional relationship with God. Unfortunately, these chapters blow that out of the water. We have unconditional love offered by God. God loves you unconditionally, just like you love your own children. They drive you nuts. They drive you crazy. Sometimes you don't even want to see them for Thanksgiving. <laughs> but you grin and bear it because you love them unconditionally. But your relationship has conditions. I crack up when I'm doing premarital counseling and, and a couple says, oh, we, haven't, we, we love each other unconditionally. I said, baloney. <laughs> baloney. Because I can, I can list for you a few conditions in which you will unlove each other. I don't know a single human who's able to love unconditionally. Because there are times that we hate because of what people are doing and how they're acting. God has a love called agape in Greek that is unconditional heavenly love that God can offer that we humans strive for but can never perfect. So God loves you unconditionally. But as far as whether he is in relationship with you or not is up to you. That's the condition. What do you think the 10 wedding vows are all about? How are we going to live together? What are the conditions of our relationship? And I think it's interesting here what God says. He says here and in the verses to come, he says, y'all just go on without me. 
You want to go on without me anyways. You ever been in a situation where you're with a group, you, you tell everyone, wait up for me? As a youth pastor taking kids to Six Flags, very first time I took kids to Six Flags, and the last time I ever took kids to Six Flags, <laughs> I said, wait for me at the gate. I'd take care of some stuff. It was, it was like 30 seconds. I get through the gate, and I'm looking, and they're gone. Era before cell phones, I couldn't find a single kid all day. God says, just go on without me. In fact, and this is where many of you have read before, and you say, I thought the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was actually an angel of the Lord. This is where it starts. Up until that time, it is the presence of God, and sometimes there's angels within that cloud with, with God. We see that in the language. But at this moment, God says, go on without me. In fact, I'll send an angel before you. He knows where he's going. He, he knows... He knows the root. I'm just going to send an angel, and he'll be the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Let's go on. There are conditions to God walking with you step by step. It doesn't change the fact that God still wants to give them the gift. You ever had that situation with your kids? You're so excited to give them the gift, and then they act like a jerk? You want to, you want to take the gift back. But then that unconditional love kicks in and the guilt of, well, I raised them. <laughs> you give them the gift anyways here. But it still hurts, doesn't it? In that moment, it hurts your heart. That that moment that you dreamt of, that experience that you wanted captured on video, it just, it just didn't happen. And so the gift is still given but the experience is lost. This is one of the most major turning points in the story of Exodus. Up until that time, God's like, you're my people, and I'm your God, and we're going together. At this moment, God says, go on without me. In fact, you're such a stiff-necked people, I'm afraid of going with you. Because if I go with you and you keep this up, I'm afraid of what I'm going to do. You ever do that with your kids? I need a moment. Can you watch the kids? I'm afraid of what I'm going to do. I love them, but I'm stronger than them. Teachers. And teachers, too. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> for expanding that out. You've had a comment forever back here. I'll make it a question. Uh, I think we were leading toward whether or not God hurts and is grieved by the actions in... Hollywood, we see before us all the time the breakup, the go back together. And in Exodus 20, um, God first lays out the ground rules saying, you shall not bow down to them, serve them, because I am jealous. I, your God, am jealous. And then we skip up to Exodus 34, and he gives more of his character in which yeah. he says, I am merciful and gracious. I am mm -hmm. slow to anger. Um, abounding yeah. in steadfast love and, and faithfulness. And you're looking at 34 verses 6 and 7? Yes. Okay. That's it. Those of you that want to follow along. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. A question there, I took a class from Tim Gillespie's dad, Bailey Gillespie, and he said the people that have trouble loving God have not learned love in their own, their own life. And I wonder if that does not affect us, especially in the case of adultery and other things, because I, I myself am a child of divorce. I have trouble trusting love. Hmm. And to learn to love a God unconditionally, based on that, I see affecting a lot of people. They don't know how to love and how to accept love. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. This is one of our, our great challenges, because we love we love verses like Exodus 34, verse 6. God is merciful, forgiving, loving, kind, compassionate. Those are the things that we've fallen in love with God over. And then you get to verse 7, <laughs> where you realize, wow, this really is a relationship. Because even though God loves us unconditionally, if we're jerks to God, he's like, well, it's your choice. It's your choice to go on. There are consequences. And that's what he means by your generations. There are consequences to your choices today that God would not have you go through. God does not want you to suffer. He wants you to get to the promise. But he's given you the choice. Unfortunately, and this goes through cycles. I remember as a child, there was a Dr. Spock, no relation to Star Trek, um, but had an idea, no spanking. My mom, who's here today, said, that's garbage, <laughs> right? The book she read said, spare the rod, spoil the child. And we didn't spare many rods, yes. In fact, we had to replace a few, I think. Um, so as we look at this, even though we go through these, these ups and downs of you know, God is, is loving. It doesn't matter what you do. You're okay. You're in right relationship with, with him. And other people that say, unless you do everything perfect, God won't even listen to you. There is a balance. And this is where we find it in this portion of scripture that says there is a balance. God has all the best for you. God will work magically for you. God will do everything to take you from where you are in slavery to make you a great nation. God wishes to bless you. But the condition is, if you don't want to follow him, he will say, go on without me. Go on without me. And that's what makes God the most gracious of all. He does not force us to follow. He doesn't punish us if we don't follow. We punish ourselves by not following and not receiving the blessing he wants to take us to. What do we need to hmm, attain before we can actually begin to value and care about God's feelings instead of only ours? Hmm. And that's the almighty question. How do I get past myself? Self is the enemy of God. The majority of the people you meet think more of themselves than others. The majority. That's why it was so hard for you to find your perfect mate. 
That's why it took so long, finding that beautiful selfless person. God's looking for his bride as well. And he's looking for someone who will put self last. That's why he said it over and over when he was here on earth. In closing, I want you to take some time, if you haven't already, and read through that whole section, 32, 33, and 34. Because in 34, you're going to see Moses. He's talking with God, and God says, look, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go. Because Moses was begging God, I can't, I, if you don't go, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to lead these people without you. And God says, all right, I'll go with you. God, in this very emotionally charged section of Scripture, shows he can be offended, but the offense has more to do with people wanting him to lead or not lead in their lives, people giving up on God. But God says, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger, I'm going to forgive, and I'll go with you. In this moment, you get a picture of God whom I can't wait to meet face-to-face in heaven. A God who truly is an emotional being, who truly loves us. Loves us so You're not offended by people you don't care about. You brush that off and you move on. You're offended by the people you care about the most. God cares about us more than we can imagine. And God says, even if you've made a misstep, which many, if not all of us have, he says, even today, if you'll ask me, I'll get back on the journey with you and I will lead you to the promise I built within you. What a great message, and I hope that this challenges you just as much as it's challenging me to have that close relationship with God, to choose to have that relationship. Now, I want you to come back and join us for episode 18, because in episode 18, we are finishing up this series by looking at the time when the 12 spies went into the land of Canaan. And I want you to see what happens here. There's several surprises coming up in the next episode, so I don't want you to miss it. So I hope you come back and join us for that. Also, if you're planning to join us, please make sure that you do what the narrator says here in just a few minutes and email us because you will need to reserve some seats to make sure that you're not standing in the back. So hope to see you soon. And if you're in the area, I would love to meet you face to face. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab Podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.